0: how's it going y'all welcome back to the cold seat podcast where the seats are cold and the takes are hot episode 38 here today on this tuesday valentine's day um i gonna start it off how we normally do with turn up the heat where we you know offer something sports related non-sports related hot take whatever we want um if you want to start us off you can um yeah we each have some little different here. but yeah i'll get it going here um This
1: is my hot take for the week. Really, I mean, it's kind of sports related, but it's more. It's about a sports topic, but it's not really like actual sports. It's about Twitter Um, in terms of like the NFL Twitter community, which is where I spend 95 percent of my time on Twitter, if not more. um, Right now, the time between the Super Bowl and the combine is just the most toxic cesspool of NFL Twitter you're going to get. It feels like this since we don't have anything going on. Um, it's okay to just start like throwing out ridiculous, outrageously, like bad hot takes about prospects, like negatively, like I'm I'm fine with like positive hot takes on guys like, okay, that's cool. But like the negativity that goes around about 20 to 24 year olds right now, just like the flat out hatred for some of these guys is just so corny. I don't get it. Um, I mean, I guess we have nothing better to do, but like, just go be positive. I don't know why I have to be. So slanderous of guys. Um I think it's kind of wild, but um yeah, just kind of annoying. You'll log on Twitter and it's like, ah, I just I can't scroll without getting annoyed at somebody's reply or tweet about X prospect at X school or whatever. It's like a little frustrating. Um worst time to browse the bird app for NFL NFL uh news and, and content. So um but yeah, that's kind of my hot take. More of just a gripe. Um more of a complaint, I suppose, but definitely a hot take. Sometimes it gets bad, but I think this is the worst of it.
0: Yeah, for sure. I'm on Twitter a good bit as well. Um, not seeing too much of that right now, but a lot of it's just because all I, most of what I see is Ravens stuff, and it's all about yeah, you you guys know, offensive the, the coordinator and either talking about that or talking about Lamar and all these pointless reports coming out about Lamar where they're saying absolutely nothing new. Um, so it's really just, from my point of view, it's just waiting on to see what the deal with Lamar is, if they're going to tag him, or if they're going to reach a deal before the deadline. I think the tag deadline's like March 7th or something, so we have about three weeks to see if he's going to get tagged or if he's going to sign a deal, um, for this upcoming season and years to come. So I'm not seeing too much of it. Um, but my turn up the heat here is that Tiger Woods is the most down athlete ever. Um, uh, 82 career pga wins he's won 15 majors he has a 22 percent career win percentage which means he's won nearly one in every four events he's started uh, which is insane a lot of the times you don't even see guys make the cut in one of every four events let alone win it you know from 1998 to where he debuted to 2007 was the most dominant stretch ever Uh, he was winning nearly 40 percent of his starts which to put it in perspective, Scotty Scheffler, who is currently world number one after overtaking Rory again uh, after winning this past week, which we'll get to, he last year, which was what vaulted him to number one, won like 11% or 12% of the starts. He, I think he won five times last year, um, which is saying something because I think there's like 44 events in the last season, and he was looking really really good and the competition now is better than ever um you know before the split with Liv and PGA it was and back when it was all one tours when Tiger was playing and it was just insane to see I didn't really follow golf as much back when he was in his prime but you know when I started following in 2019 or so obviously he won the Masters which was crazy and he's just been extremely dominant obviously not as of late with his injuries and not playing that much uh but you know from 97 to 2019 really was dominant um winning one out of every four like I said so that's just my take right there I think a lot of people just just dismiss golf uh you know one of the less followed sports and less uh you know they don't get as much revenue they don't have as big of a following as many fans um so rightfully so you know it doesn't garner the attention of some other sports like, you know, baseball, basketball, football do. Um, but yeah, I put him up there right with anyone.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can get on board with that take. I think there's definitely some guys and girls I would throw into that conversation. Um, definitely throw Serena Williams in there in terms of like lesser followed sports. Um, Serena just, I mean, dominated the tennis world for over a decade. Um, definitely got throw her in there. Um, probably throw LeBron in there just for the dominance he had obviously TV 12, but um, I can definitely go on the train with that. I think I, that's a take that I. It's definitely hot, but I definitely um I, I understand the logic behind it. I think a lot of people want to dismiss Tiger for the, you know the demons he dealt with in the early 2000s. Um, that he's more than moved moved past and um, has absolutely grown from those. And um, you know everyone's got their their stuff they deal with in their personal life. Um, you know didn't really affect um you know his golf once he got through that stuff. So um, you know took took care of it like a. Um, you know, like like anybody should, and it absolutely dominated even after the fact. Um, so I can definitely get behind that. But since we're on the topic of golf, we will stick with that and get into uh, golf for the episode. And I'll let you uh, take us through this weekend's uh, golf and what we got going forward here next week.
0: All right, yeah. So fresh off Tiger Woods uh, talking about him, we'll get back to him in a second. But this past weekend, we had the Waste Management Phoenix Open at TPC Scottsdale in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um. Crazy event. It's like the craziest event of the year in terms of like like a fan atmosphere. It's like a party atmosphere. It's awesome. I really want to go sometime. Um, but Scotty Scheffler guy I was just talking about who won on a tear last year. He did win this past weekend, took home the trophy of the Waste Management for the second year in a row. Um, he's posted his 19 under. Across the four rounds, taking home 3.6 mil, uh, really impressive showing from him. He wasn't really high on the leaderboard until, you know, Saturday and Sunday. Um, you know, the wins on Thursday and Friday were really strong and it led to a lot of, you know, a lot of balls rolling off the green and stuff like that. And really hard for guys to post scores and really score at all on the course. So plenty of guys coming in over par after Thursday, let alone Friday. Um, Nick Taylor and John Rahm though they finished second and third, uh, posting scores of 17 for Nick and 14 under for John Rahm. Nick Taylor took home 2.18 mil and John took home 1.38 mil. So not a bad showing from them either. Them either. Uh, John was a world number one just you know not even two years ago uh, after he won the U.S. Open. So he's still right up there at the top. Uh, good to see him. You know s- some of these big names still playing top golf uh, out of the guys that haven't. Defected to the live tour. Uh, you know, Scotty, obviously you still have Tiger that's playing every now and then, but we have Joaquin Neiman, we have John Ron, we have, I mean, Roy McElroy, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, all those guys are playing pretty well right now and it's good to see. Uh, but for this upcoming weekend, normally, you know, the Waste Management will normally kick off the season or the AT&T program at Pebble Beach will uh, kick off in terms of big events and then, you know, within the first three weeks we'll have the Genesis Invitational which is played at Riviera Country Club in California uh, last year. Joaquin Neiman won it and really impressive. This is one of the tougher courses, one of the more iconic courses, um, and always proves to be pretty hard. I know two years ago in 2021, I believe it was Max Homa and Tony Finau played like a four-hole playoff, which was a crazy finish. Um, you know, Max Homa ended up winning. But Tony Finau has had his fair share of wins in the past year or so. Um, the purse for this year's Genesis Invitational is 20 mil, as a few other events are. First place is going to take home 3.2 mil, which is 16% of the purse. Um, Tiger Woods is going to play in this event. He's going to play, see how it goes, uh, obviously, in hopes of winning it. Um, hopefully he makes the cut. If not, we're only going to see him on Thursday and Friday. But if he does uh, it'll be fun to see it's gonna be fun to see how you know he can handle the walking part of it. That's always the main thing. He can always hit the shots you need, putt, whatever from wherever um, but it's mainly just about walking walking the course four days or let alone two days to make the cut. Um, but yeah, it should be fun to see how he rebounds and how he plays after not really playing in a high stakes event outside of the match, um, which was just a televised you know uh, fundraiser for TNT.
1: So, I don't know the unwritten rule. I I kind of know the unwritten, unwritten rules of golf. How about this? What if collectively we just agree that Tiger can have a golf cart? Is that like would that would that be like totally like would Tony LaRusso lose his mind? Do you know what I'm saying? Like would old heads just go crazy for that?
0: Yeah, it's definitely something that's been you know mentioned a few times, and I don't know if fellow players on the PGA Tour have set had much of an input. I haven't really heard anything, but from a lot of other people, a couple of USGA people were talking about it. It wouldn't technically be legal. Um, but I mean, I would, I would be fine with it. I think most people would, but at the end of the day, uh, it's just how it is. And he normally walks co- the course anyway, when he's practicing to try to get through it and truly practice getting around in um, by not, you know, taking the cart around uh, to truly endure, everything that he would on a normal course on the PGA tour. Um, he's always been one to kind of take the hard way and, you know, do whatever it takes to win. And I think if they came out and said, we'll let you ride in a card, I think he probably would. But at the same time, I think he's fine, you know, playing how everyone else is right now. I think it would be tough while – you know, a lot of people would support it and it'd be easier on him. It would mess with the pace of play and he would be far ahead of others in his group. So it would be tough, but it would definitely be nice for him to, you know, at least one event, try it out, uh, put him on a cart and see how it goes. But as for that, I don't know if that'll happen. Uh, he's getting better and better since his accident last year at the Genesis or two years ago. And, um, you know, with his back surgeries and stuff like that.
1: You know, I just, I was just, Throwing it out there, I like, listen. I don't. I don't follow golf the way you do. I'm a very casual golf fan, and I didn't know if that would be something that like, you know, the old heads of the golf holder just totally lose their mind at, or if it's like, you know what, for a legend of the game, just make it easy on them. But I don't know. Um, but we'll keep it pushing here. It's another sport that has a lot of old heads that get upset about new rules. Um, baseball just implemented what one, two, three, four. Really five five big-time new rules that are going to be permanent uh, going forward here. Um, kind of been trying them out in the minors for a while. Um, going to be bringing them to the MLB this season. It sounds like they're going to be here to stay. At least, you know, the shift is here to stay. The pitch clock's probably here to stay. Um, as well as the base size. Um, probably the position players pitching as well. And then um, the ghost runner, obviously. And then we'll see about the, the pickoff and distance slash disengagement limit. But we'll kind of get into it with the first um, – I guess we'll I'll go one for one here. The so uh, first one that they kind of got to, which was expected, uh, was that the regular season ghost runner and extra innings is not permanent. So um, as most of you guys have probably seen in the last couple of years, I believe it was the COVID season was when they started doing this, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. So it's um, basically in extra innings now in regular season games, uh, teams get a runner on second base to start the inning, um, which means the Dodgers are going to go winless in every extra inning game from now on. That's just you know, the rules, I suppose, since that I've been atrocious in that format since it became a thing. But personally, I'm all about it. I think, uh, you know, baseball's issue, main issue is like pace of play. And um, most of the rules here, you know, it, you know, certainly these this one plus the pitch, the pitch rules, um, you know, this is going to help that. I think it's entertaining. I think it adds a nice strategic element to the game. Um, you know, you, you probably want to have a nice speed guy on the bench. That way you can, you know, sub him in. Put him on second base for the last guy that was out in the ninth inning. So I think it's cool. I like small ball. He plays some small ball that way too. So um, a lot of people are upset about this one. I just frankly don't care. In a 162 game season, very rarely does one game ever make a difference, especially in like in terms of getting to the playoffs. Like maybe winning your division, but at the same time, like that one game making a matter in terms of making you know making a wild card, especially with three wild card teams. We saw it this past season. Like, that didn't affect – there wasn't a one-game difference between team that made it and team that didn't. So, I think it's fine. I like it. It adds adds a strategic element to the game, and it's going to make games go faster. So, I'm all about it.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's nothing new. They've been doing it for a couple seasons now. So, not too bad. Um, I have nothing against it. You know, it's a fair shot for every team. You know, each team gets to hit. Each team gets a guy on second. So it is what it is. Uh, You either have it or you don't. It doesn't really give it a competitive advantage for one team over the other, unless you have like an insanely fast guy. But normally it's just the last guy that was out. So unless you just luck into having your fast guy be the runner. Uh, But on to the next rule, the shift has been eliminated uh, from the MLB still in play in college. So shift uh, must have two infielders on each side of second base and they must be in the dirt, uh, not on the outfield grass. Players can move once the ball leaves the pitcher's hand to wherever they please. If they want to try to get into a shift really, really quick, if they could you know play it right and get over fast enough. Um, but if a ball is hit in a play for a base hit during a violation, the play will continue on. If the ball is hit in a play during a violation and results in an out, sacrifice, or others, um, the hitting team can choose to accept or decline it. So acceptance of the penalty results in the ball being added to the hitter's count and declining it results in the play standing as it is. So um, a little more detail on this than I talked about in the ice bath last week. So that's definitely interesting, uh, bringing in technically penalties to baseball, you know, with the review system and stuff like that. It might slow down games a little bit occasionally, depending on, you know, the stakes of the game, stuff like that. You could see some teams trying to, you know, b- bend the rules of the shift ban a little bit. Um but I'm for it. You know, you see a lot of pole hitters having, you know, their averages plummeting because you'll have three guys on the right side of the infield for left handers, and then you'll have the fourth guy literally straight up. So there'll be no one on the left side down the third base line, and it'll be tough for a lot of guys to, you know, get in a rhythm offensively. So I think this is good. It's more fair. It's how it should be played. And I've always been in favor of banning the shift, and it should come to college next season. So,
1: yeah, I'm all about it. I think, um, you know, Oh, the shift was kind of, I don't want to say gimmicky, but like, could have done without it. Um, The thing that I think is cool is that, you know, this whole penalty thing, as as advanced as baseball is and as as technologically friendly and accepting as they are, I would assume they kind of have this automated, basically like, hey, if if a player crosses a line before the pitch is sent, like, it's going to be automated down to the umpires, like, hey, you know, this needs to be called, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's also a nice way from the test out automation, um, in baseball to prepare for, uh, automated umps, which I think is going to come to baseball eventually, um, in the next five years. Um, so I'm all about it. Um, I think again, it's going to be really just a, a the game wants more action. I think so. the other biggest problem MLB has is pace of play and just not enough action. Sometimes you've got zero, zero games going into the eighth, ninth inning a lot of times. So, more more scoring more action this is certainly a way to do it um next rule here is gonna you know uh, the biggest one that addresses their 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 pace of play uh, is the pitch clock pitchers now have 15 seconds to throw a pitch when the bases are empty and 20 seconds to throw a pitch with runners on base um i you know i, I like it if the, if, so if the pitcher's not started the motion to deliver pitch hasn't started, he hasn't gotten on the rubber come to a stop or come to a rest and then t- pick this foot up. Basically he started his, his, his pitching motion. Um, the batter will be granted a ball. Um, so if it's without well, within 15 or 20 seconds, depending on the situation. Um, and then if the batter is delayed entering the box, um, he'll be penalized with a strike. So same thing. You can't sit there as a battery, stay out of the box, mess with the pitcher's timing and then get into the box. You'll get a strike if that happens. Um, yeah, I think this is a good rule. I think there's going to be some of the older pitchers, first Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Clayton Kershaw, guys who've been around baseball for a long time that probably aren't going to like it as much. Guys who tend to kind of take their time. Um, but at the end of the day, they're just going to have to adapt. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. This probably helps hitters as well, which doesn't shock me that nobody wants to do that. So, um, but but I think it's fine. I think as someone who loves baseball, I think definitely acknowledge the fact that there are pitchers who take way too long you know, to throw pitch and um, this is certainly going to help. And then this next rule that we'll get into um, goes hand in hand with the pitch count in, in pitchers and speeding up the game. So I'll let you get into this next one.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so, you know, the shift eliminated pitch clock implemented a little bit more uh, this season, but then the pickoff disengagement limit. So in terms of that, pitchers are now only allowed two pickoffs or fake pickoffs Um, or disengagements of the rubber per at-bat. If a pitcher does step off the mound for a third time, he will be charged with a balk unless runners on base are advancing or an out is made on the ensuing step-off. So if your third step-off is a successful pick-off, there's no penalty. Uh, Obviously, that could slow down the game a little bit as well. I know a lot of guys do that to either allow the bullpen arms to warm up a little more or you know, maybe try to set up for a later at bat. Um, so that could slow it down, but at the end of the day, you rarely see guys picked off. Maybe once every three games you see a pickoff, maybe even less. Um, so that's not a huge deal. This isn't as nearly as big as the pitch clock or the shift. Uh, but nonetheless, another rule that's being implemented and, you know, more penalties to come out in baseball. But I don't think this will be that prevalent or this won't have to be implemented as much. Um, I don't think you're gonna see guys trying to get a third pickoff unless it's a guaranteed out. The runners right between the bases. I mean, it's never really happened to where guys are gonna have that many pickoffs. I get you know keeping the game moving, but at the end of the day, they're doing this setup later at bat. So I get it down the stretch of the game. Um, but yeah, not a huge rule being implemented.
1: Yeah, I think, I think this one comes into play a lot. When you see, like, a reliever come in and sh- get absolutely shelled, it's like, man, we got to get him out, but we don't have an arm ready yet. So we're, sh- we're going to pick off three times in a row Install. stall. We're going to pick off, take our time getting the ball back to the pitcher. We're going to take our time getting to the mound. We're going to walk around, all this stuff. This is mainly what that's get geared toward. Um, Or if you got a reliever, a starter who's in, who got to get pulled early, same thing. Um, but I think they wrote the rule right. I think this could have gotten tricky with, like, You can't do two, or if you, no matter what, on your third, you get a balk. Well, man, if I'm a base runner, I'm just going to take the biggest lead possible. So now it's like if you take a huge lead like that, you're going to get successfully picked off. So I think they wrote this rule right. I think they did a good job getting this rule written and implemented. Um, This one's going to be a tough one. I think a lot of pitches are going to – I think this is the most controversial one. Um, Just because I think the whole, like, calling time thing is going to be tough, especially with pitch comm. It's like, hey – What if I have a pitch comm issue? I've picked off twice. Now I have a pitch comm issue. Like, what am I supposed to do? You know what I mean? So, that's where it's going to come into come into play. Maybe it's like, hey, you get a manager timeout. uh, You know, one per inning for that kind of thing. That's maybe what they have to implement. Or catcher can call time, and it's not going to be counted against this. As long as it's you know for a mound visit, you get X per you know inning or whatever. I don't know, but um, they I think they wrote the rule right here. This kind of goes hand in hand. um, You know, the way they wrote the rule to prevent base stealing goes again hand in hand with the next one we're going to talk about is base size being increased from 15 square inches to 18 square inches so it's, instead of 15 by 15 it's 18 by 18 now um is the way that i read this um i mean the bases are considerably larger i mean it's i've seen the pictures like everyone's like photoshopping making it a meme now it's like the base is literally looks like it's a, a four foot by four foot versus the, the old base which is kind of funny but um I think this one's geared toward player safety for the most part. Um, They're trying to avoid guys getting their ankles taken out on slides at second and third base, trying to get, you know, a lot of times you see first baseman get stepped on at first base, um, you know, trying to get a a scoop, trying to get a tag, keep the foot on the base, um, and then just get stepped on with the runner going by, running hard through. So um, this one I think is geared toward player safety. I I don't think it matters. I mean, home plate remains unchanged. So, frankly, I don't think this really matters. You're going to see maybe a couple more base steals it's like i think it's like four point 4.2 or 4.5 4.7 like inches shorter from base to base now it's still 90 feet technically um but it's like you know from edge of the base to edge of the base it's like like a little shorter so maybe you'll see a couple more base steals from super fast guys but i don't see this one being a huge issue people are trying to make this a huge deal and it's it's really not it really isn't a huge deal at all in my opinion so um i think this is a good rule again it just lends itself to better player safety which I'm all about and player health so um no no issue with this rule. I think this is one that's um should be relatively unnoticeable for the most part
0: yeah for sure I think it's pretty small the difference like you said it is a little different a hair closer between bases but at the end of the day you're really going to see that you know a few inches make a difference in an out or a runner being safe um But to round out the new rules that have been implemented to the MLB, we have the position players pitching, um, I guess, amendment to what never really was a rule. So the league and players are finalizing a rule change where position players can only pitch when there is a 10-run discrepancy. Um, So basically what that means is that when a team is losing or winning by 10 runs, they can place a position player on the mound and the winning team will not have to remove him if he gives up a run. Reducing the lead to less than ten um so it's not a huge deal once again, you rarely see position guys pitch unless you've got like fifteen plus runs scored by a team um so you won't really see this ever come into effect probably five times over the course of a season, but I mean at the end of the day, ten run discrepancy I mean it doesn't matter if you let a fan come out and pitch it's not gonna do anything I mean. Normally is a 10-run discrepancy in like 7th, 8th, ninth inning. So three innings left in the game, it's not going to do too much. And they still have to follow the pitch clock and all that. So not a huge rule. Um, That pretty much wraps up the MLB as we're going to jump in to the NBA here. First, uh, before we get into the trade deadline recap, which was last week, we're going to give a quick standings update. I can get the West, or I can get the East, you can get the West. So as we start out here in the West, or sorry, in the East, we got eight teams. We're doing the top eight, and they are separated by 12.5 in the East. At eighth, we have the Atlanta Hawks at 29-29. and 29. At seventh, we have the New York Knicks at 32-27, 10 games back. In sixth, we have the Miami Heat. They are 32-26, and 9.5 games back. In fifth, we have the New Look Brooklyn Nets at 33-24, and 24, 8 games back. Fourth, we have the Cleveland Cavaliers, 38-22, four and a half games back. So a good bit of a jump there. Third, we have the Philadelphia 76ers at 37-19, and 19, three and a half back. We have the Milwaukee Bucks in second at 39-17, and 17, one and a half back. And then best record in the league still, uh, number one in the East, are the Boston Celtics, 41-16, who actually travel to Milwaukee tonight uh, in a clash between the top two teams in the NBA uh, record-wise. So that should be fun to see who comes out on top there. But nonetheless, Celtics have looked like the best team in the league from the jump.
1: Yeah, no doubt. They've been healthy, they've been consistent all year. So um, certainly a team looking to get back to the NBA Finals and, and flip the script on the series this time around. Um I'll get to the Western Crowns. I'll, I'll switch it up this week. I'll go I'll go top to bottom this time instead of bottom to top here. Um, still, still hanging on to first place with a five-game lead is the Nuggets. 40 and 18 Got the Grizzlies in second place at 34 and 22 five games back Got the Kings at 32 and 24 seven games back fourth place you got the new look Phoenix Suns at 31 and 27 nine games back to this tied at sixth you've got the Mavs sorry tied at fifth my my bad Uh, the Mavs and the Clippers at nine and a half games back each 31 and 28 and then tied at seventh You've got the Pelicans and the Timberwolves both ten back, with the Pelicans being 30 and 28, and the Timberwolves being 31 and 29. Um, seeing a little bit of a little bit of separation here in the Western Conference. I think uh, definitely you know with the Nuggets staying at the top. I don't know how long that holds with the new look Suns, obviously getting a lot better. And we'll get to this in the trade deadline um, right here uh, in a second. But obviously they look a lot better. Um, they're going to look a lot better with Kevin Durant on the team. So um, certainly one to, to kind of watch as we pushed toward you know the end of the season here. But speaking of the Suns and Kevin Durant, we'll get into the trade deadline recap real quick. Uh, we're going to hit on the two probably the two biggest name trades. There's obviously been a ton of I mean there's a flurry of of, of trades involving you know solid role players that we probably won't get to all of them right now. Um, it just would be here for an hour running through all of them. But we'll hit the two probably the two biggest names being traded. Um, the first one being a four team deal uh surrounding around kevin or revolving around kevin durant going to phoenix to close the suns um four teams that were involved were obviously the suns the nets the bucks and the pacers uh, where the nets received three first round picks from phoenix in 23 25 27 and then also 29 2029 um a 2028 first round swap with phoenix a uh, 2028 2029 second rounder uh, second rounders from milwaukee mikhail bridges cameron johnson and juan pablo Vallette. i believe is how you say his last name the bucks received jay crowder The Pacers received George Hill, Serge Ibaka, Jordan, Nuara, three future second rounders from Milwaukee, and cash considerations from Brooklyn. And then the Suns also received TJ Warren in the deal. Uh, I know Serge got bought out. I don't know if Hill is getting bought out, but I think he is as well. Um, A lot of buyouts in these deals sometimes. Um, But nonetheless, you know, obviously the big one here is the picks going to, to Brooklyn, which who knows if those pan out, you know, long term. Uh and obviously Kevin Durant going to the Suns for what's a, a massive win now move for the Suns and um you know thrust them square into the middle of the, of the conversation for NBA finals favorites now. Obviously nine nine games back in the Western Conference, but you know, Devin Booker's getting healthy um or will get healthy here later later in the season. Um obviously getting Kevin Durant in there now is a huge deal for them. So if they just kind of stay afloat, in the middle of the pack in the Western Conference. Shoot, they're gonna have a shot to win it all uh, when everyone's healthy. So I think this is a great move. From the Suns, I don't really know why the Nets moved to Durant. They had no reason to, other than Durant wanted out. But they have him under contract control for the next three or four years. So why they made the move, I'm not really sure. Um, but a great move for the for the Suns, who will eventually have to do some some get some you know cap creativity going on. Um, but nonetheless, a, a phenomenal win now move that could pay dividends starting this season. So um, great move from the Suns here.
0: Yeah, for sure, definitely. You know, one of the first big moves on deadline day, I think it was like just after midnight this happened. Um, Because up to that point, all we really had was the Kyrie trade, you know, a couple days earlier. But yeah, overall good trade, four-team trade. Obviously, you know, the Suns were the headliner, getting KD to pair up with Booker and not having to give up CP3, which was big as well. The other big trade was the the Los Angeles Lakers. They traded Russell Westbrook, and they're now bringing – D'Angelo Russell and a couple others back uh, in a three-team deal with the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Utah Jazz. So what the Timberwolves receive is Mike Conley, uh, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, 2024 second-round swap from L.A., and a 2025 and 2026 second-round pick from the Utah Jazz. What the Jazz receive is Russell Westbrook, Juan Toscano Anderson, Damian Jones, and a 2027 first rounder from the Lakers and with the Lakers also receive in addition to D'Angelo Russell or Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt. So a pretty solid deal overall, I think for all three of those teams, you know, the jazz are actually looking pretty good. Um, you know, with all the first round picks they have, obviously now Russ, hopefully you can turn a new leaf on his career and kind of revitalize his game and stuff like that um, with, you know, the young pieces they have in Utah. Uh, but overall, good trade for all three teams. Headliner being, you know, Russ is out. Um, But yeah, each team got better from this deal. And I think we'll be looking to kind of make a push here towards the end of the season.
1: Yeah, no, I think, um, like you said, obviously getting Westbrook out of there and bringing, bringing D'Angelo Russell back to Los Angeles where he started his career uh, back in 2016 is a big one for the Lakers. In um, immediate shooting upgrades, the biggest thing I take here and then a defense upgrade getting Beasley and Van Rolten there. Um I believe they got like a sec, like a one or two second round picks Teams were throwing around second round picks like crazy at this deadline. It was like Milwaukee had exchanged was something like eight second round picks by the end of the draft or then by the end of the, the the deadline. It was like they'd sent X number. They'd received it. It was like it was crazy. But nonetheless, um, you know, I think that's a great move. for The Lakers, uh, you know, good move for I think, all, all parties involved. It's a fresh start for Westbrook. Who's been rumored to maybe get bought out, which would be kind of surprising. Um I guess it wouldn't because the jazz really aren't in a, in a place to contend right now. So it wouldn't shock me if they just bought him out and let him go somewhere else. Um, I don't know where he'd land, frankly. Um, I, I have no idea where he would land, honestly. Um, but yeah, it's kind of Anderson's a guy. It may get bought out as well, but if they're really in it for that 27 first rounder, but um, overall a solid deal for most of the teams here, um, kind of get what they want out of the trade and um, they all keep pushing. Like I said, we'll, We'll kind of we we'll kind of update you guys with any buyouts that happen. They'll probably happen by by next episode, next week. So any major buyouts that happen, um, nobody, nothing major's gone. I think Reggie Jackson yeah, got bought out. And was gonna sign with I think the Cavs or something like that. Um, somebody, I think Danny Green's signed with the Cavs as well. So um, I know John Wall's getting bought out in Houston after he went, got shipped back over there. So um, obviously that's a bigger name that whenever he signs from his buyout, we'll let you guys know where that is. But we'll kind of keep pushing here with the episode, getting the NFL. Uh, and then ice bath and we'll get out of here. But um, NFL going here with the Super Bowl recap started off. Um, and then we're going to do a couple coaching hire updates after that. But Chiefs, when their second Super Bowl in the last, what, four year? Yeah, four years. Um, defeating the Eagles 38 to 35. Um, it was a, a phenomenal game. I think, you know, all 60 minutes of football were awesome. I think, obviously, the, the big one is, you know, 58 minutes of football. And then, at, you know, 140 or something like that. The flag gets thrown on on James Bradbury. controversial call. Um, yeah, we'll we'll each give our thoughts on it here in a second. Um, but nonetheless, it was a phenomenal game. Um, you know, Patrick Mahomes with the second Super Bowl MVP after a really good second half, uh, three passing touchdown performance, not necessarily a great yards performance from him, but again, three passing touchdowns um was a great win it counted. And, um you know really battled through a tough ankle injury and looked like he was in a lot of pain at halftime so the fact that he came back out battled through it um is a testament to his toughness and just the winner that he is the competitor um but a great game you kind of overall let you kind of throw your thoughts and analysis
0: in there if you want to yeah for sure um you know the chiefs definitely in the second half made some massive adjustments couldn't be stopped on offense for the most part you know, when all the 49ers were trashed in the Eagles secondary, I mean, looking back on it, they weren't all that wrong. Um, you know, their D-line kind of made their secondary look better than they were – than they actually are with, you know, with a mediocre average D-line. Um, you know, the Eagles have the well most well-rounded roster in the league. Um, obviously, they're going to lose a lot of guys this offseason to either free agency or retirement. They've already lost two coaches. Um But yeah, it was a really good game, three-point game, all the way down to the stretch. I think it was ten at the biggest um, gap of points. But overall, pretty solid game. That penalty was definitely changed what could have been the outcome. Um, It definitely took a lot of time off the clock that would have been Phillies had you know it not been thrown. Casey would have been, been kicking a little bit longer of a field goal to go up three and the Eagles would have had, you know, probably about 40, 50 seconds more to get down the field and, you know, try to get the ball either in the end zone or kick a fuel to tie it and send it to OT. Um, but that call was, it wasn't great. Obviously there's been a worse that hasn't been called. Um, but there was a pretty bad hold by Bradbury on Juju earlier in the game that wasn't called. I don't know if that was a makeup call or what it was. Um, I mean, you could see a tiny bit of a tug in Juju's jersey getting pulled a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think you can throw that flag. Uh, they didn't they you know, they blew their whistles pretty late, you know, in the you know, controversial catch plays. They didn't blow their whistle. They let the play play out just in case it was a catch and a fumble. And, you know, we had the Nick Bolton touchdown. We also had another Nick Bolton touchdown on a controversial catch from Miles Sanders in the flats. But they overall they didn't throw the flags that much. Um, they didn't blow their whistle early, like I was saying. Uh, so I was surprised to see them throw that flag from that crew. Um, and all ultimately just at that time in the game, it was disappointing to see, uh, you know, that kind of be the moment everyone remembers from that game. I mean, unless you're a Chiefs or Eagles fan, but overall, like I said, I, you don't, you shouldn't throw that flag unless it was a makeup call, but even then it's tough to, you know, make that call right there at that point in time with you know under two minutes left.
1: Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think again, you're right. I mean, at the, at the, at the stem of the route, not even the stem, like right right at the top at the at the bottom of the route. I mean, right off the snap, maybe a little bit of a hold, but um, you can call that on every single play. I feel like um, you anyway, know, the I felt like the flag got thrown late after the ball was already thrown. It was an overthrown ball. It wasn't Juju wasn't getting there if he was unimpeded. Um. You know, I think, again, the refs let him play basically all day. So it was or all evening. So I I didn't like the flag throw. Um, I, I, I think I texted you this. I think I tweeted it out that, you know, that the holding didn't obviously they, did not lose Philly the game. What lost Philly the game was the fact they couldn't stop a nosebleed in the second half. Unfortunately for them, they got their stop. And. The flag was thrown, and it prevented them from the opportunity to win the game. At least is how I put it. Um, it didn't keep them from winning it. It just prevented them the opportunity to win it. Um, you know, had they not thrown the flag, you know, ball hits the ground at one forty, Casey probably kicks a field goal. Philly gets Philly gets the ball back with what, a 90 seconds probably, and a timeout to go to go win the game. So, win the game or tie it and send it overtime, or maybe the Chiefs get a stop. I mean, who knows? So. Um, you know, we have no idea what happens if Philly gets the ball back. We have no clue. But um, you know, I just I felt like the fact that they let him play all day, there was a worse call that there was a uh, probably a worse hold late in a route when the ball was being thrown that didn't get called. It was Bradbury and Juju. So it's like um I just didn't like the call, didn't like the time of it, didn't like the timing of the call either. Everyone says you you know, if you make a call in the first quarter, you gotta make a call in the fourth quarter. Um, but I don't think late in games you just let guys play, honestly, especially in the Super Bowl. Um, I hate when refs get involved in games, especially that one. So it it does suck to see 58 minutes of incredible football kind of get overshadowed by a what if and a controversial call. I hate to see that as a fan. Um, but at the end of the day, Philly like couldn't stop a nosebleed in the second half, man. They gave up a ton of points. I think KC scored a touchdown on every drive, but the last one. So, and they probably could have scored a touchdown had they not just run the ball three times. So, um, Disappointing end there, but obviously a great game. Um, Jalen Hurts played his tail off. That guy had probably the performance of the whole night. Obviously, Mahomes won the MVP because they won, but Jalen Hurts probably had the performance of the night. Obviously, the fumble uh, return for a touchdown is a, bi- a big killer. But again, Jalen put the squad in his back. He responded. When KC when went up eight, he responds. He leads him down the field. He scores a touchdown gets two-point conversion. So big ups to Jalen Hurts. I think he silenced a lot of, a lot of doubters and a lot of haters going into that game. Those that said that you know he's the system quarterback. Is it easier on him? Sure. But he he, he balled out. He did his thing. So uh, big ups to Jalen for sure in that one. But um overall it was a great Super Bowl, like you said. And um, you know, I hate to see the Chiefs win a Super Bowl as a Chargers fan, but um, you know, that's just kinda how it is, man. You just kinda roll with it. Um, that's like probably how Jets and Bills and Dolphins fans felt after watching Tom Brady with Super Bowl. It's like we just gotta deal with it. Just reality we live in sometimes. But um kind of into the coaching higher updates real quick and then we'll get to the ice bath and um we'll get out of here. But I'll start us out with the uh, the first head coaching hire of the day early this morning. I kind of got rumored last night, heavily rumored last night, that this was going to happen. Um, kind of in the talk all week was that Indianapolis Colts were going to hire uh, Philadelphia Eagles offensive coordinator Shane Steichen as their next head coach. Uh, they officially announced that this morning. Um, Steichen was the play caller for Philly this year. Obviously, it's Sirianni and his offensive mind. I mean, they're both Frank Reich disciples, um, guys who learned under Frank Reich. Um, so definitely a a familiar scheme going to be happening there in Indy. Um, a little surprised that Jim Ursay decided to fire Frank Reich to hire a Frank Reich disciple who was on a staff run by a Frank Reich disciple. Um, don't really understand that logic there, but um, I exchange a great coach, he was the offensive coordinator for the Chargers for a couple years, season and a half. I guess they fired Wiz, uh, I believe like mid season in 2019, and then he was the OC in 2020 higher uh, rookie year. So I'm a big Shane Stockton fan. I think he's a great guy, a great leader of men. Um, I'm excited for what he's going to do in in, uh, in Indianapolis, and we're really looking forward to seeing how well he does with that offense.
0: Yeah, that was definitely, you know, a hire that came out a good bit after all the other hires. You know, obviously we had three hires today um, for coordinators or coaches. That was definitely a good one, I thought. Be interesting to see how Indy looks next season. I'm always interested to see how these revamped coaching staffs, you know, how they kind of affect their overall team and how the team adjusts to the new staff, the new culture, the new environment, uh, just overall everything, especially in Indy where they've kind of not found their footing, it seems like, since Peyton left for the most part. Uh, they've just been, you know, rotating in and out veteran quarterbacks I think they're really ready for a fresh start and they want to overall you know have a guy in place for the future you know they have Steichen as their head coach hopefully for years to come I think it's a six-year deal and then you have hopefully your rookie quarterback coming in for years to come for you know four years with a fifth year option
1: who do you th- this is kind of off this is I just thought of this question kind of put you on the spot who do you think Shane who do you think Shane Steichen wants a quarterback? Of the of the, the I guess I'll throw four. I'll I'll make four available because I always thought, like, man, if it's up to if it's up to Chris Ballard, it's gonna be Will Levis. Because like he loves traits, he loves the toolsy traits guys. So like, what do you who do you think Shane's gonna want? I think it's gonna be Bryce Young, but I'm just curious what you think.
0: It's probably Bryce, but I also think they're just going to see how the off season play at, plays out. Um, you know, this obviously change, and I think even on draft night, they'll still be thinking about who they want. Um, you know, what they want to give up because obviously they don't have the first overall pick; they have the fourth. So moves have to be made for their for them to get the guy they want most likely. So I think their opinion's going to change, uh, but right now it's probably Bryce. Just you know, have to go with him. He obviously won a Heisman. He's played really, really well in his two seasons with of full time starter at Bama, um, and I think that's probably a safe pick for them to you know kind of reboot their franchise a little bit with the new head coach, new quarterback, uh, you know, not just cycling vets with you know interim head coaches and stuff like that. So that was a good hire there, I think. I mean, obviously, they didn't their list of interview candidates wasn't anything special. I think regardless of who they hired, it would have been. You know, a little, like, you couldn't have done better. Um, But at the end of the day, this is a good hire for them, and I think hopefully it pays off for them in the long run. Um, You know, next today we had the Arizona Cardinals. They hired Philly defensive coordinator Jonathan Gannon as their head coach. So another, um, you know, guy on Nick Sirianni's staff on the other side of the ball heading out for a head coaching job, this time headed to Arizona. Good hire overall, I think. You know, obviously we saw what happened with that offense and that team when they had a a play caller as head coach and didn't go over too well. So I think getting someone, you know, from the defensive side of the ball could, you know, go over a little bit better to where they can focus on the defense and they can hire a play-calling offensive coordinator. I think that'll be a little smoother for, you know, not Kyler for the first probably 10 weeks of the season. Um, But overall, a good hire. I hope to see Kyler rebound, and I want to see how that offense looks in the new system. But at the end of the day, they got the guy they wanted, and that's that. I mean, they hope that work, this works out better than Cliff Kingsbury. hire did. Um, but, yeah, another higher, another head coaching hire, where I'm looking to see how well it goes. I think that was five new head coaches for this upcoming season jobs that were vacated this past season and had to be filled this off season. I believe that this was the last one to be filled. Um, but yeah, all the head coaching, I really am always looking forward to see how they play in year one under the new culture and stuff like that, let alone all the staff, position coaches, stuff like that. But yeah, that's pretty much it for head coaching hires. Now we just have some you know, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator hires um, that went down since we last recorded.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on Gannon real quick. You make a good point that I think them hiring a defensive coach makes a lot of sense because of the, the, for lack of a better term, drama that Kyler Murray's had. I'll say conflict that Kyler Murray's had with his offensive coaches in his career, I think outside of Lincoln Riley. Um, I mean, you look at when he was at A&M, we went down with him in the OC there when he was a freshman, um, kind of a heated exchange on the sideline um, after Kyler threw a pick or two in a game. Transfers goes to OU. I think he did great with Lincoln. And then obviously him and Cliff buttered heads a lot. Um, so I think getting someone in there to to run that offense that's a little more disposable per se. Um, you know, head coach, I mean it's, he's not just the offensive offensive coach. I mean, he's 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 the face of the team, right? So it's like you can't just dispose of a head coach because your quarterback doesn't get along with him or the offense sucked um for a year, right? Like you can get rid of an OC for that reason. Um, he's a little more disposable. Um, you, you as long as you get one of the quarterback coach or the OC is the guy that Kyler likes, I think they're going to be okay. So I think you make a good point there, but, um, I'll put, I'll, I'll throw this out before we get to the, I- I'm only going to want to talk about one of these coordinator hires. I don't think, yeah, we'll get to the Houston ones too. The Houston ones are solid. Um, but I just, is, is Jonathan Gannon just Brandon Staley for coming from the East coast? Here's my thought process. Cause I personally, I'm not a Brandon Staley fan. I think he's a great leader of men and I think the team loves him as a coach. He struggles to game manage two years in he on has underachieved for two years now with a plethora of talent, especially at quarterback. Um, and I think he makes questionable personnel decisions to say the least. So, um, you know, he's obviously was a young, he's a young coordinator, not a lot of experience in the NFL, um, not the first time head coach. I just wonder if Jonathan Cannon's the same thing. He's a younger coach, less experienced in the NFL th- than a lot of the other candidates that were on the market. Um, and he's a young defensive mind. I just wonder if and he played he coached a loaded defense. I mean, that Philly defense was loaded, right? Top to bottom. So especially up front, which is a big one. So I just wonder if you know, maybe his job was really easy in Philly with the the between the veteran leadership Fletcher Cox, Brandon Graham, Darius Slay, and just the overall talent they had on that team. I just, I wonder if Gannon's gonna be a good head coach. Um, I hope he is. I'm not playing on his downfall by any means. I just, with the personalities that he's gonna have to deal with, I, I wonder if he's the right guy with the lack of NFL experience and just juggling everything all at once. Um. So that's, I threw the Brandon silly thing out there. I texted you earlier and said that, but um, we'll get to the coordinator hires here. I'll let you get the Ravens one. Um, I personally don't really care about the Carolina Panthers, DC or the Dallas OC. I mean, they hired Brian Schottenheimer, who sucked as an OC at every stop he's been at. So L higher, but I guess he's not calling plays. It did not really matter. Uh, but the one I want to talk about is, Houston, Texas hiring Bobby Slowick as their OC coming from uh, San Francisco as the, as the passing game coordinator and quarterbacks coach. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this hire. Came with D'Amico. Um, he was probably one of the hotter names in the OC market. And I, honestly, I think that could have been a guy that that, the, that y'all would have hired had he not wanted to follow D'Amico, which I get wanted to go with D'Amico. He's a coach, you know, you feel secure there. Um, so I, it's a great I think he's one of the better offensive minds that was available to be hired as an offensive coordinator. I think it's a great hire for D'Amico. Um, And I just thought I love it. Um, I won't touch on their D.C. I mean, they hired Matt Burke, um, but I'm not going to get into that a ton. Um, But I I did like the the uh, the O.C. hire for Houston and D'Amico Ryan's there.
0: Yeah, Bobby was one of the many guys that I definitely liked and I wouldn't I would have been perfectly cool with heading to Baltimore to be the O.C. for the Ravens. But the Ravens, you know, they interviewed 14 different candidates, conducted 21 interviews, which means you know, seven of the 14, came back for a second interview, um, you know, 12 external interviews and two internal, slew of different candidates, um, you know, past game coordinators, offensive coordinators, former head coaches, you know, everything. They even talked to Cliff Kingsbury. I don't think it was an interview, but she talked with him. So they exhausted all their options, definitely wanting to Changed the offense in a big way and I think they did a great job of it in hiring you know one of the older candidates uh, University of Georgia's offensive coordinator Todd Munkin as their offensive coordinator he was in the NFL previously he was with the Cleveland Browns and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers before heading to Georgia and winning back-to-back national titles um a guy that you know has a pretty fiery personality loves loves the players um probably going to be in the press box most of the time um, calling the plays as the Ravens defensive coordinators on the field, but I like it. He's never known for, he's never been known for calling a certain scheme. He just calls to the strength of the system or players. Um, You know, obviously when they had this past year, they obviously had Stetson Bennett at quarterback, not the best, but he made him look really good and they had a great tight end room. They had solid pair of running backs and that's how he called the games. He called the games to favor the tight ends, favor the run game, and it worked really well for him. So I think regardless of what the Ravens personnel looks like on the offensive side of the ball, um, it'll be utilized to the maximum potential, maybe not early on. Obviously, it's going to take a lot of warming up to the new system, getting things you know, in order. But nonetheless, uh, while I was looking for a little bit of a younger coordinator Todd Munkin was definitely one of the guys that I really liked and I was perfectly fine with happy with uh, coming to Baltimore to be the offensive coordinator. He did turn down a job to return to Tampa Bay to come to Baltimore instead. I really think that was just wanting to have a new start. Obviously, like I said, he was in Tampa Bay previously as offensive coordinator for the bucks. Um, But yeah, I think this is a hire where really Harbaugh couldn't go wrong With this guy, I think he has some connections to uh, Munkin just through his brother and through college coaches he knows more so than others. Obviously, most of the other interview candidates were from other NFL teams where he didn't probably have as many connections with. Uh, But at the end of the day, like I said, interviewed 14 candidates. They hired Munkin for a reason. Um, You know, he has a solid reputation. He has a solid Um, track record. So I think it was the right hire. Um, Obviously can't judge it. All Ravens fans wanted Greg Roman gone. He's gone, brought in a new guy. So I can't say anything negative about this hire until, you know, you give him a chance, see a full season, see how it goes. Obviously, you know, with injuries and stuff, those happen, but I'm just looking for improvement, Um, better play calling situationally and better scheming uh, in the past game. So, I think that's what Munkin brings, and I'm looking forward to it. Obviously, starting in the preseason is kind of where you get those things down and just try to work some things out before heading into the regular season. So definitely excited about it. Obviously, the Ravens rode with Greg Roman for four seasons. First couple seasons were nice, but as Lamar developed and you know kind of evolved his game, especially with his arm, you know Greg Roman didn't really follow suit, and he didn't evolve his play calling. Uh, so I think Munkin's definitely a guy that will evolve with the offense uh, and stuff like that. So I'm really looking forward to it. Excited about the future of the team. Obviously, Lamar's status is still up in the air. He has until March 7th, which is the tag deadline, where we'll know, all right, he's going to be franchise tagged, likely exclusively, which is 45 mil. Or he's going to be signed to a long-term deal, which I hope is the outcome for me right now. Going on a little bit of a tangent, but real quick while I'm on the Ravens subject. I just either – I hope that Todd Munkin works with Lamar, and Lamar interviewed with the Ravens front office, with their owner, uh, general manager, scouting director, head coach, and they all kind of made the decision together. Um, But if Lamar is exclusively franchise tagged, which is the $45 number, Obviously, some cuts, trades, restructures will have to occur for the Ravens to fit that one-year contract under uh, the salary cap, as they're sitting at about 28 mil right now in cap. Um, Exclusively franchise-tagged means if a player is franchise-tagged, then they cannot be offered but for two first-round picks, I believe. If it's not exclusive, then a player can be offered from another team um but the ravens have a chance to match it and stuff like that obviously if you're not tagged then you're a free agent anyone can talk to you anyone can sign you and the ravens don't get anything but probably a comp pick the following season but when it comes down to it i either want lamar long term or i want to trade him this off season i don't want to have him play on the tag uh for this upcoming season you know shoot maybe not even playing on the tag um that is I'm something that that some players there's do. There's no,
1: there's, there's no way he plays on the tag, dude. He's either, he's either assigning an extension or he's elsewhere. He, there's no way he plays on the tag. That's what I. That's
0: do. what I hope. I, mean. I hope that he doesn't. I hope that, you know, when they get OTAs going, when free agency kind of wraps up, that he isn't on the tag and that he's either on another team or, you know, with the Ravens long term. But that's discussion for another time um you know as we kind of head into free agency in about four weeks or so uh, i think it's one week from yesterday or one month from yesterday um i think we're down to 29 days or so when the tampering window opens up so exciting stuff obviously we have a combine coming up is kind of the first thing but in terms of the episode uh that'll be all for the nfl section as we're kind of round out the episode as we normally do with the ice bath where we each going to offer you know our takes where we're just going to off script, a little bit of something sports related, uh, both same category today, uh, talking about tech baseball, but I'll let you get started on it. Yeah,
1: real quick. I will say on the Todd Munkin hire, I know you said younger guy, love the experience. He brings to the table, man. Love the experience. Play calling love the experience, just football around football. I think it's a great hire. I thought, I thought of the guys you guys interviewed, I thought he was the best choice personally. Um, I see the enemy would have been up there, but I don't think the enemy is leaving Kansas city for another OC job. So um, phenomenal hire there by the Ravens. Um, yeah, I'll get in my ice bath here. Um, really excited for Texas tech baseball to start this weekend, um, Friday night, or I guess Friday during the day, 1 PM or something like that. They play Gonzaga. Uh, they're a season opener at home at the law. I won't be there. I have work at like three. So maybe I'll pop in for like the first part of the game. First part of the game. Maybe I'll do that. I don't know. We'll see. I do have work this Friday though, but uh, nonetheless, really excited for it this weekend. Saturday, Sunday for sure. Probably Monday as well. I we got a Monday afternoon game. I'll probably go to. Um, but overall, should be a good season. I'm excited for it. Um, probably the definitely the most excited I've been for a college baseball season. I think between the potential that we're going to see from Tech, I don't want to say the unknown, just the the potential that, that is kind of being talked about with all the young guys. And um, this was kind of the lackluster overall lackluster base basketball season, obviously. Uh, big win, big win last night for the Red Raiders, uh, taking down the Longhorns of Texas uh, in Lubbock last night. But um, in a, in a great win. But again, overall, life closer season. probably not making the tournament still. So um, you know, really excited for baseball. You're going up and hopefully, um, you know, kind of replace what we missed out on uh, in in uh, basketball season. Obviously, we're both big baseball fans. Um, you know, love the love the game, love the sports. So really excited to start
0: going to baseball games uh, every weekend. Yeah, for sure. A uh, huge baseball fan myself. Can't count how many games I went to last year. You know, whether they were sold out, UT games, or, you know, 200 people in attendance on a freezing cold game against Abilene Christian. I was there. Uh, Dude, you know, following that and was so me. rough. Oh, those ACU yeah, games were tough, man. We were freezing. I remember that. Oh, gosh. Those, I love baseball. I just love how many games you have, you know, a chance to attend. A little bit longer of a game compared to basketball, uh, about the same duration as football. Overall, um, you know, Tech entering the season ranked 24th, plenty of talented underclassmen. Basically a new era of Tech baseball. We saw pretty much every upperclassman move on uh, to either the draft or to just their future career, whatever they're wanting to do in life. I mean, running out of eligibility and stuff like that. Had some fifth-year guys this past season in 2022. Yeah, but new era of tech baseball. All the old guys out, new guys in. Tech has 37 home games this season, matching their most in a season. Uh, obviously, like you said, it starts this Friday at 1 p.m. against Gonzaga. I think they play Gonzaga third Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and I think the game times are 1, 1, 1, and 11 um, for those four games. So should be fun to follow along. I believe I can only go to two of the four games, which is a little disappointing. Um, Wanted to try to go to as many as possible, but some stuff's coming up, having some people in town. Um, so gonna definitely be watching. Every game that will be televised somehow, some way, I will be watching it. Um, you know, whatever I have to do. Last year I think when we played at Rice, I had to like go to their website to their specific conference and like say I was a Rice supporter and be able to watch the tech game. So that was fun. I mean it was crappy coverage anyway, but hey, that was the uh yeah. series that Hudson White jump started his a uh, great 2022 campaign after a slow start yeah. to his college career. But yeah, um, lastly, yeah, Tech basketball. Last night played UT at home. Uh, if you haven't noticed, my voice is a little bit hoarse. Um, fun game, though. Overall, Tech won by seven, I believe. Um, 74-67, I think. Really fun game. You know, Tech went up by 13. They had 44 at the half. Really impressive. Davion Harmon point guard transfer from Oregon had 21 at the half uh he finished with 25 which was a career high but you know we saw a lot of guys step up in the second half that didn't have a big first half impact you look at Fardal's AMAC really playing his healthiest game of his tech career so far as he transferred in this year he had you know 12 points eight rebounds and three assists with some really really big plays down the stretch Jalen Tyson came on strong in the waning moments um you look at Kevin O'Banner just a steady force with i think 19 points or something like that always provides something offensively when you know you need it or you know if he wants to open things up for other guys more than capable of doing that Robert Jennings another freshman played pretty well so just overall team effort from tech uh, you love to see it you know the last three home games have been three wins against top 13 teams in the rankings so you look at i think Iowa State was as high as 8 this year Kansas State was as high as five, and I think UT was as high as two. Um, so you look at those three wins and their resume wins. So they're obviously quad one, uh, massive wins for Tech in their hopes to you know, kind of chase a you know, March Madness bid. Um, but obviously five games left in conference play. I think they realistically right now I think they're going to win three of them. They probably need to win four of them. And win a game in a win conference four conference tourney.
1: They probably gotta win two games in the conference tourney to get into the playoffs to get into the tournament. That's what I was thinking. It's but gotta it be depends. like you gotta win four. And it can't be you got it's gotta be like a quality road loss. I don't know I, what do they, who, do they have they no, they already played in Lawrence. I don't know what their road games are left, but it'd have to be a quality road loss plus probably two wins. Or like one win and like a in like a last second loss in the
0: conference tournament. It can be tough. I mean, they, they can get there, it's gonna be tough. But I think you know, everyone obviously knows Big 12 is the best conference in basketball by a good margin. Um you know, if Tech doesn't finish in last, they're ninth out of 10 teams right now. I think that'll definitely favor them to where the Big 12 is probably a 8 sure. or yep, 9 absolutely. bid league. And I think the remaining schedule if I remember correctly, we go to West Virginia this weekend and then we go to OU next week. We host TCU the following weekend. Then I think we go to Lawrence. And I think we host Oklahoma State to finish the season on March 4th. So three of our next four are on the road. I think we need to win all those. Ideally, we win every game, but the you know one versus Kansas. So hopefully they turn the corner. But at the end of the day, I'm just hoping to see some good basketball finish the season strong, whether it's you know on March 4th or in the tournament. And I'm just looking forward to baseball, like I said. Um, You know, about time that we have a season here. Tech baseball is always a steady force. You know, College World Series, I think three of the past four seasons before we came here in 2020. 2020 lost in the super regional, 2021 lost in a regional. So, I think, you know, pretty high expectations this year, but at the end of the day, it's a young squad. It's going to take a little bit for them. I'm sure they've jailed plenty in fall ball and stuff like that, but it's going to take a little bit for them to play some meaningful ball together, really get to, you know, get a feel for the season and a feel for each other's game and stuff like that. So, it'll be definitely fun to follow along. Plenty of games on the slate this season, tons of games, uh, big non conference games. And we'll definitely be talking about college baseball, I think, once conference play starts for everybody. So until then, uh, while non-conference play is going on, we'll probably touch on it in the ice bath every you know couple weeks. But, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps up the episode, uh, episode 38 here today. This Friday, uh, if you didn't listen to our positional rankings episode this past Friday, uh, we are going to have interior defensive linemen position rankings where we're each probably going to watch, you know, eight or so guys. Rank our top five in order. Talk about them. Um, you know the gist if you listen listened to the positional rankings previously. And, yeah, I think we have four episodes left. Um, we're not going to reveal all the positions, but if you're paying attention, you kind of know what positions we haven't touched on. Uh, with the last episode coming just after the combine, and then we're going to take a week off, kind of reset the schedule, flip of the episodes, and then get into Mock Draft Mondays starting on March 20th, I believe. So we're going to have six of those finishing up the week of the draft. So a lot to look forward to here on the Cold Seat Podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Cold Seat Podcast um, to know when episodes come out, know some of the biggest news going on across all sports. And, yeah, overall, uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening, and we will see you all on Friday for the defensive lineman rankings. See you
1: guys Friday.